beautiful people. Welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking this week with regular contributor Emily Coinheiser, who is one of three representatives from the town of Brattleboro. And we are going to be talking about school taxes, education taxes, Get excited! Yay! Yay! Resources for our kids. It is right. Mm-hmm. Making sure we have an engaged citizenry who can make good choices at the voting box. Mm-hmm. So, Emily, just to give folks a little bit of context, one reason we're talking about this now is because we're starting to head into budget season. A lot of school districts, a lot of municipalities have started their funding planning for the new fiscal year. Now, I know we often talk about get out to vote and decide on the budget, but it's not really the thing. You can only vote the budget up or down for the most part come town meeting. This is when the budgets are being built. And so that's partly why we want to talk about budgets and money now. But we also want to talk about a letter that came out from the Vermont Tax Commissioner's Office called the December 1st letter, which comes out every year. It's required by law, where the, I call it sort of a a pulse-taking letter, where the tax commissioner Mm, just says, here's the lay of the land, everybody. This is what we're kind of looking at, given early budget numbers, what's likely to, to happen come school budget season. And this year, I think, hit a lot of people hard because if everything stays exactly as it is, which is unlikely, there is a possibility of an 18.5% increase in education taxes, which could mean for someone with a $250,000 home, an increase I've seen, depending on the sources, I've seen some people cite 600 bucks. I've seen some people cite 650 bucks. But for a homeowner, that that can be sticker shock right there. However, this is not set in stone. And so Emily's here to, who actually works on Ways and Means, so who deals with taxes, is here to give us the rest of the landscape that we're looking at this year. Thank you. That was such a thorough summary, Olga. I appreciate it. And I've heard a lot of reporters summarize the issue in the last week, and you did a stunning job. Well, thank you. Welcome. So yes, the December 1st letter is actually came out on November 30th this year, day earlier than anticipated. And I say that because there was a lot of splash and clash and media frenzy connected to it, um, very much supplied by the governor's office. That has, I think, complicated what is usually, as you described, a sort of pulse-taking, pulse-sharing conversation. So the way the December 1st letter works is the Agency of Education asks school districts around the state what they anticipate their budget would look, will look like. And it's not like a mandatory, districts don't have to participate in it. And so not every district is included in those numbers. And again, this is the really the sort of the beginning slash middle of local budgeting processes, right? And if anyone's participated in that process, you know that things can change. And there's lots of opportunities for public participation between now and something between town meeting day and May 1st. 
well, lots of, I, you know. I'll also add, I think most municipalities, I can't speak for school districts because I haven't covered them as much, but most municipalities, when they first start out, they're starting out with, this is what we would really ideally like to see. And then part of the budget building process is to refine that and say, well, I know you would like to hire 14 new staff members, but we really can only afford five. Mm -hmm. Right. And so those numbers become a little more refined and perhaps a little more realistic as they go through the process. Exactly. But it helps to have a preliminary number. And so they essentially, the Agency of Education adds up all those sort of preliminary numbers on what districts think their school budgets will look like. And the school budget reporting information is less about what the total budget will be and more what they think their education spending will be. Mm -hmm. And education spending is not spending on education the way it say it sounds in regular land. In fact, it's a technical term, which is sort of the net of all of the other money the school district has minus how much they anticipate their budget to be. So how much more money they need to meet their budget goals. And so the offsetting revenue right? All of the other money they have could be reserves. And we know that school districts built up really big reserves over the last few years that they then spent down. They finished spending down last year for the most part. It could be federal money. And so we know that school districts have massive infusions of federal money, not through the state, but actually directly from the feds. It was called ESSER, E-S-S-R. I have no idea what that stands for, but I think the word education is probably, or schools, or maybe those E's and S's. I'm not sure though. And um, <laughs> emergency and then, there somewhere too. <laughs> maybe. And then there's sort of other revenue. So there's a lot of federal money related to poverty that goes to school districts that's sort of ever-changing how much is coming because it's based on federal formula that we don't have any control over. And then there's money that comes directly from the state's education fund to districts outside of their regular education spending. That's money for special education, money for transportation, a few other things. So they report on their education spending. And what we saw in that preliminary gathering of data is that their education spending was going up tremendously. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that their spending on education is going up tremendously necessarily. Budgets... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Budgets could stay exactly the same. Right. And that education spending number could really go up because all this federal money has disappeared. And we also have to remember, I don't know if you received Doug Hoffer's newsletter about the there's uh, supposedly in here, there's a pretty large increase around teachers health insurance that Doug Hoffer kind of addressed in his latest newsletter. But I think what's important about that is we have to remember there's also spending in here that schools have no control over. Yes, yes, there's a lot of spending in there. Yes, and health insurance is a big one. Pensions is another one. There are a lot of, you know, as anyone who has had sort of personnel line items in a budget before, there's a lot that you don't have control over and a fairly small amount of wiggle room. And inflation impacts everyone. And there's sort of inflation, inflation and healthcare costs separate from, you know, all the rest of the inflation and inflation and healthcare costs is growing even faster than inflation. So again, budgets could be the same. Education spending could be going up anyway. Budgets could be growing for very real reasons, right? Like schools are 
kids are struggling. Like just because the federal declaration around the pandemic being over happened doesn't mean that the fallout isn't like sitting in their lives and their learning ability and their community participate, like all of it. Schools are really like experiencing significant learning loss and trying to grapple with that as well as a lot more social emotional challenges than they had before. Okay. So that's like the, how that number got into the pot of the special math that creates the December 1st letter. The other number that goes into the pot is how much money other money is in the, how much money is in the education fund in order to send to all of those districts that might or might not need that money. Mm-hmm. And that is other revenue. So that's like meals and rooms tax and sales tax. There's like a whole bunch of money that comes in throughout the year, goes into the education fund. And that number was really high the last couple of years because people were spending their COVID checks, their unemployment checks. People were spending, spending, spending. We've talked about talked about this so much before. Right. And all of that spending creates extra revenue for the state. And so there was like lots of extra money in there. Mm-hmm. In past years, that extra money is not as much there. It's not like gone, but it's not as much there. And so less money in the education fund to meet those out of other sources to meet that projected possible sum of needs from districts. And so what all of the people who do all the special math between the Joint Fiscal Office and the Department of Taxes, they do a joint project, special math together, and they say, okay, here's all the money we think we'll need from the education fund based on the sum of education spending. Here's all the money we already have, we anticipate to have in the education fund because of all of these projections about revenue, meals and rooms, sales tax, et cetera, how much more money will we need? And that how much more money will we need this year was a pretty big number. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty big number for a few reasons that I haven't said yet. One of them being in past years, we were able to, because we had all that extra money from like sales tax and stuff like that, we were able to sort of I don't want to say artificially, but we were able to lower ta- property taxes right. with that extra money. So school spending could even be like growing at a very normal rate, not spiking. But because we don't have that extra money in the education fund, we might be seeing it you're, you're, looking like property tax rates are spiking. Right. We're feeling some of the the true costs because that other buffer yes. money is not in there. Exactly. So we had buffer in the district, so they were asking for less, and we had buffer in the education fund, so we were asking households for less. Mm -hmm. Because basically, districts ask for money, the education fund has some money, the education fund the money doesn't have, it then essentially requests from taxpayers via property tax bills, right? That's the great circle of the education fund's life. (laughs) For those of you listening on the podcast, I'm making some fantastic hand motions as part of this little soliloquy that you are missing out on. It is a shame. They are. It is a shame. Yeah. They're really very circular, all of those motions. They're, so they're anyway. kind of philharmonic conductor. Thank you. Yes. It's, it is a great tax symphony that we're talking about. <laughs> so as you said, Olga, it's a starting point. Where do we go from here? That's very, very unclear. Mm-hmm. So is it you know, thank you for that dose of reality, but for the people who are home freaking out and they're here the hearing the governor at his press conference say this is unacceptable, mm-hmm. even though I don't believe he then offered any solutions at that press conference, though I could be wrong, I may have missed it. 
No. There what was, do we no. What do we tell people for how we can move forward from the vapor stage? Yeah, that's. Oh, I love that you called it the vapor stage. <laughs> so, and I, you know, the December first letter itself is fairly neutral. It really just presents the facts and talks about some of the factors. The press release that the governor sent out afterwards was very dramatic and talked a lot about unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And the legislature must do something. The legislature doesn't really have that much control in this situation, right? Because as I said, we are sort of duty bound to send the money to districts based on how local communities vote and make decisions about how much they need. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of duty bound to make up the difference via property taxes. We know that like around two thirds of Vermonters don't pay based on property taxes they pay based they pay their property taxes based on income adjustments or their renters but all of these numbers affect everyone there are ways that we can sort of move those three dials right like the renter dial the income adjustment dial and the property tax dial so that one of those three groups picks up more of the slack Mm -hmm. but it's a hard decision to make right but who's going to pick up more of the slack Mm-hmm. there's the option to add more revenue, new revenue into the education fund. But again, that means raising taxes somewhere else. So that's like another spot in the system, picking up the slack. Mm-hmm. There are definitely more equitable ways than property taxes to pick up that slack. And that's mm-hmm. sort of a conversation. And then the other option, which I was very surprised to learn Shumlin actually offered quite a number of years ago is essentially like begging districts to vote down their budgets. Right. Right. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. I was really surprised to read about that in an article. I did not, I don't think I was paying as much attention to the education fund back then. And so that's sort of an interesting piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear to me if that's what the governor is doing. It seems like he's stopping just short of that. Well, I think, uh, yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought. I think kids like are really like, I, I mean, I've said it already, like kids are really struggling right now. Schools are really struggling. Like Stuff is tough. And I don't know of a district in the state that's spending extravagantly. Mm-mm. And so I don't know what's to be gained by that kind of action. Right. Because it does seem to me that the resources are needed. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I read in one newspaper article, and I'm sorry, I, I, I don't remember which one, so I can't. I can't give the outlet credit, but they were talking about how during and after the right after the pandemic, many schools use some of their COVID money to hire extra support staff in mm-hmm. terms of, say, social workers and school counselors and to wrap around students who are struggling with learning, especially learning post pandemic. And it reminded me of Paul Heinz's article from seven days many, many years ago, where he had looked into a number of nonprofits mm-hmm. around the state and basically chronicled how different sectors of our social life nonprofits had sort of taken up some slack from mm-hmm. things that the state was no longer providing. And it just makes me think that if these students need these services, it does make sense that schools would provide them because that's where the students are. However, they still need to be funded. And if that's a new need or a greater need, then it's there. 
and we have to figure it figure it out I know that sounds yeah a little laissez-faire but no no it's a huge um it's a huge important point in all of this so there are a few different ways that costs have sort of shifted onto school districts over time and that's one of them so also you know we used to have state funding for school construction and that stopped about a decade ago. Mm. And so we're seeing a lot of deferred maintenance costs coming due mm -hmm. and um, some school bonds passing. And those costs are carried by the whole education fund. Mm -hmm. And then on the mental health and what you just said about sort of shifting costs within the great state system, absolutely. And so I know this is, you know, I was just at the Wyndham Southeast finance school board finance committee meeting last night via the zooms and that's something that we talked about so the district hired a lot of mental health workers and social workers often hired them away from hcrs oh interesting okay you know the designated agency there you go thank you our designated mental health agency because the health agency was not really able to deliver the services that the school district needed in terms of like a level of collaboration and full staff capacity and all kinds of things. And that has is happening, I understand from my colleagues, all over the state. It's not something that just happened at Wyndham Southeast. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the general in like budget terms, if we're thinking about taxes, the general fund sort of covers the costs for the designated mental health agencies, perhaps not sufficiently always, but I think there's also some organizational challenges that they face. And then the costs when they're hired by the school district sits on the education fund. Sort of similarly, we're seeing police departments, local police departments hire social workers, right? right. And mental health specialists. And then that's carried on the town budget mm -hmm. rather than on the state budget, right? It's a very similar sort of shifting of a system that was designed for like really deep collaboration when that deep collaboration isn't working people pick up the slack and say, oh, I'll just do it myself, right? Like someone doesn't answer when you call, you're like, oh, whatever, I'll just do it myself, right? Like very sort of standard life and workplace reaction. And we're seeing that play out like systematically and systemically, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another one of the costs that again, the system's going to pick up somewhere where the system is picking it up right now. People see that in a much more direct way. And that's one of the things that's cool about the education fund. It is like, one of the most direct democracy, like decisions lead to tax rates, pieces of our system. And that's, it's not just intellectually cool. It means that folks really are able to participate in the process. Yes. And I'm and going to push back on that. Just go little. for it. Because it's confusing as hell, isn't it? No one has any idea what's going on. Well, exactly. And I sometimes feel a little bit when we talk about, now I'll step back. When I was preparing for today's show and going through some of the media coverage and, and some of the governor's statements, I was just going back to our core of being a show that tries to look at stories behind mm -hmm. the policies. And there is some there are some narratives built into our education conversations, our education funding conversations that are just so deep. And one of them, if I'm to be a little cheeky about it, I call the not it yeah, because you'll hear school districts say, well, the state makes us do this. And so we don't have control. And then you'll hear 
legislators say, well, we only have this limited piece of control. And so Mm -hmm. we didn't cause the problem either. And then you've got the governor just being like, well, people either need to vote down their school budgets or da da da. But again, not it, not it, not it. Mm -hmm. And I think that adds to the general confusion that people feel around education spending, where it feels like even though they're told they have direct control, it still sort of feels like this sucking black hole that just keeps expanding every year. (laughs) And that's aside from wanting to do well by our our kids and wanting to care for our kids. That's just not understanding how money enters the system and how it exits the system and how it impacts all of us in between. I think there's still a lot of people who are like, it's just a black hole. There's sort of two ways I think it's a sucking black hole, right? There's the piece that schools are a sucking black hole. Gosh, I hope this doesn't get quoted somewhere else after we out of contact. (laughs) Schools are a sucking black hole in that they pick up all of the slack that society leaves behind and puts on kids, right? The schools are the ones who pick up our failures to feed our kids in our homes. Right. Like, and I don't mean like individual parents failure to feed their kids. I mean like society's failure to make sure that families can feed their kids Mm -hmm. or like our lack of social emotional capacity or the fact that we like the pandemic ended, we all just sort of carried on with our lives or, you know, all kinds of things. And so the stress in families' lives, Mm -hmm. the lack of extra adults in a household, you know, whatever it is. And so there, it's like sort of a, cultural educational place that picks up the slack that everyone else drops and then there's the fact that like there is absolutely that game of not it because it is this very you know it's designed to create a lot of equity which is fantastic but whenever we try to create equity things get more complicated and the more that things get complicated the harder it is for people to like act upon them Mm -hmm. But the whole thing sort of sits on this assumption that local decision making makers are making informed decisions. Certainly, I as a politician cannot like go around the state saying like, local decision makers are making uninformed decisions. Please reelect me, Kornheiser for office, right? Like that's not a winning, that's not a winning move right there. And you certainly, sure? you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so the system is too confusing to make informed decisions. And I think, you know, it's like two people's benefit to sometimes make the system seem more confusing so that people can't act on it. Right. Mm-hmm. So the governor is able to sort of like create this tension around the legislature, like unacceptable. The legislature must act. It's so confusing that no one that no one realizes that like the governor could act. He's in charge of the agency of education. They could do all kinds of things maybe to help districts save money. They don't. They aren't. There's no proposal on the table from the administration on this one. The legislature can act, but the only way they can really act is by raising new revenue. The governor would veto that. Mm -hmm. So rock in a hard place. Yes. New taxes. Governor would veto that. So like, what exactly is the governor expecting the legislature to act on in a way that's going to be comfortable for people? And then voters can go to their school board meeting, figure out how it all works. Definitely there are people who work in districts who don't want to deal with too many voters and so make things sound more complicated than they are. Mm-hmm. And like 
there's not a lot of wiggle room on a lot of those budgets and teachers are working really hard and teachers are our neighbors. And we don't want to like put them out of a job because they're taking care of our kids. And so like, right. we have all of these narratives. We like care about our kids. We care about teachers. That's not like a bullshit story. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that. on the, Am I not supposed to say that on the radio? That's a real, that's a real thing. It's not just like a myth behind the, like myth behind the policy. You know, it is unacceptable for property taxes to go that go up that fast for a lot of people. Like, I agree, it's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. The solution then needs to be acceptable for people. And I don't, I don't know what to do about that. And I'm feeling very aware of the fact that the legislature does not have an entire communications team the way, say, the governor does. And the school board does not have a whole communications team. And so who is telling this story and how? in a way that will actually move us through the issue so that people can be better off as a result of it. I'm not sure. Thank you, Emily. We need to hear from some of our un- underwriters here on WBEW, 107.7 LP Broadbrook, your community radio station. So stay tuned. And yes, I want to talk a little bit about the narrative as well when we get back from there. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. As always, we want to thank BCTV for sharing the video version of our podcast with public access stations and media centers across the Vermont, and even a few across New England, which is a great honor. Thank you, everybody. And as always, you can drop Emily and I a line at themontpelierhappyhour at gmail.com if you ever want to tell us something wonderful and fascinating or even something boring. We'll take that, too. (laughs) Kind of nerdy that way. (laughs) If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. And we've been talking about school funding in particular. The Vermont Tax Commission's December 1st letter, which, yes, it came out on the 30th of November, because why not, even though it's called the December 1st letter, that just gives, it's the starting point of a lot of the education funding conversations that we'll be having between now and town meeting day in March. (sighs) So, Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the hosts and the guests, respectively, not the stations, platforms, employers, friends, pets, AI tools built into their computers (laughs) that um, otherwise. Fantastic. And I have to say, we Mm -hmm. both did a marvelous job at, for the folks on the radio or the podcast can't, can't see this, but Emily and I did a marvelous job of coordinating our clothes to our backgrounds. (laughs) it deserves a a round of applause I think so Emily you know thank you for the breakdown before we heard from underwriters looking at some of the meat of the December 1st letter and I have to say two things kept coming up for me while I was preparing for the show one was (laughs) bear with me a memory of a, 
German Shepherd my grandparents used to have. His name was Spike. He was a beautiful, beautiful, lovely German Shepherd who we all loved. Spike had a very long tail and spent many years of his youth walking under electric fences and getting zapped. <laughs> Poor baby. But it got to the point that whenever he walked under a fence, didn't matter if it was electric or wooden, it didn't matter. He would yelp all the way under the, the fence in anticipation of getting zapped. And it just it's so cute and sad. It's very sad. We're like, Spike, you don't have to worry anymore. We'd turn off the fences just so we could walk through them with Spike. Um, and he would still be upset. But I think some, in some ways that's how conversations around education funding goes in Vermont. <laughs> we're all just waiting to get zapped by these electric fences. So even when they're not on, we're still like freaking out. And I think part of that is a little bit, and this will tie into what we want to talk about with Act 127, is I feel a lot of our conversations around education spending and funding still talks in terms of winners and losers. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's see. In the first iteration, it was what the, the gold towns mm -hmm. and then the poor towns. And, and now it, and then it was like Cadillac towns and non-Cadillac towns. Um, mm -hmm. And, and even now with uh, 127, we're hearing some of that language again around winners and losers. And I feel like what that does is instead of looking at our education system and our funding system as taking care of all kids in Vermont, it's still trying to pit communities and school districts against each other. Yeah. And what I've, you know, seen in the last couple of years is a real escalation of an urban rural pitting as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which despite maybe the best efforts of some people engaged in that pitted argument cannot help, but sound racial. Mm -hmm. And so that adds another layer of complexity to all of those debates. And, you know, when we were talking about act 127, when it was just a bill in the legislature to correct, you know, longstanding lack of mathematical accuracy in our, the way we counted kids and their needs I spent more time than I am perhaps entirely comfortable admitting talking about how we even talk about the communities, how the communities were going to experience the changes that we were mm -hmm. enacting. And so I had a very silly argument with someone about like whether, you know, winners and losers versus gaining or reducing tax capacity and whether someone would like rather have a reduction than a loss. And just like, I mean, just at the end of the day, something of nonsense, because like the entire education fund is built on this whole premise that like, we're all better off when we're all better off, right? Mm -hmm. All the kids are our kids. We talked about this last year when we were talking about the legislation or two years ago. And, you know, honestly, Vermont, like all the kids in Vermont is like less kids than many school districts, single school districts around the country are, right? So it's not like there's this like, wild diversity of needs that we can't possibly tackle from one fund. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's that. And it's hard. And Act 127, when it passed, and we knew it was going to have real significant reshuffling of the scale of people's sort of 
taxes in relationship to each other. It passed with really stunning support across the political spectrum. The governor signed it. His administration worked on it very diligently. You know, the Agency of Education was fully at the table and participating. They were the ones who managed the contract that led to the report, that led to the changes. And communities, including Wyndham Southeast down here, or Montpelier Roxbury, or South Burlington, Essex, Williston, communities that we knew were likely going to actually lose some tax capacity or have a reduction in tax capacity, or perhaps have higher tax rates in relationship to other communities. That's another way we could say it. That's probably the most honest. All said they wanted it to pass because they thought it was the right thing. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that we passed something despite folks being uncomfortable and objecting. Everyone said this was the right thing to do and we should do it. And now that it's actually happening and likely is resulting in increased spending pressure and likely is going to result is tax rates going up for certain communities if their spending stays the same. There is, there's some buyer's remorse. And what I've come to believe is I think some districts, despite being told so, thought that it wouldn't happen to them. Mm-hmm. So there's that part. There's also just like, it's real now, as opposed to an intellectual exercise in equity. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. The districts that are gaining tax capacity are going to be able, to, or who will be able to spend more with the same tax rate. They're not necessarily saying, oh my goodness, this is great. We're so glad this finally happened. Our kids are going to have their needs met. They're saying stuff more like, oh, this is what we needed all along, or we deserve this which I think makes it harder for other people to be gracious about their loss. It's quite a muck and mire. Mm -hmm. For folks who maybe need just a a little brush up on Act 127. Why would anyone need a brush up on Act 127, Olga? Basically, if you're you're new to this, (laughs) you probably have heard it, but it wasn't called Act 127. I think we called it pupil waiting Mm -hmm. for a long time. Basically, it was redoing how how we divided funding among schools based on, what was it? Was it poverty? So again, it's not how we divide funding. It's how we divide tax capacity because it's basically how we count kids in order to figure out their tax rates relative to their education spending. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's, which is so clear. <laughs> it's so clear. So it's basically how we calculate the per pupil spending in each district. It's, the amount they're spending divided by the number of kids. And the way we count kids is not just like one, two, three, because the idea is that some kids need more resources than others. And so they basically represent more than one person, Mm -hmm. more than one kid. And so that's kids who are living in poverty have sort of low socioeconomic status. And there's a bunch of different ways we count that. Mm -hmm. There's kids who are English language learners kids who live in a rural area and go to a small school. Both of those things have to be true, not one or the other. Mm-hmm. And then grade level. So some grade levels are more expensive than other grade levels. And so we changed basically how we count those kids, like how much each of those things counts for mm-hmm. when we're counting kids. And a kid could be like an English language learner and have a low socioeconomic status and be, you know, in a small rural school, and then they would sort of get counted extra, extra, extra. Yeah. Because all of those sort of things that 
exacerbate costs. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons that this bill came to to be, but I seem to remember in the UVM study, UVM and they did it in conjunction with someone. Forgetting they did. That, yeah. I can't believe I forgot. It's um I'm kind of excited, actually, Olga, that I forgot the name of the other organization. <laughs> I know, it was that long ago. But one yeah. thing it was an acronym, if that's any what was the reassurance. Acronym? It was an acronym. That's all I remember. Oh, okay. So we're forgetting <laughs> who actually did the study. It was UVM and, and somebody else. It was that long ago now. It was, it was the before times. The pandemic hadn't even hit yet. But one thing they found nope. was that some of the... Was it? Oh, the re- the report itself was the, the before times. Itself, yes, the absolutely. Bill, the report, yes, yes. Found that some of the math we had been using was not really strong math. Mm-hmm. Wasn't based on what was actually happening in a lot of the schools. And so I think that's one reason it passed is a lot of people were like, yes, we need to have good math and good formulas going, going into this education funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It was basically the original way we counted kids was not research-based. It was sort of Mm vibe-based when the system was first designed. And we have a lot more ability to do really good statistical analysis now. And so we have sort of a more scientific way of counting Mm -hmm. those kids and what they need. Right. Although we also have to acknowledge that part of the hoopla right now that's happening around the December 1st letter is... Act 127 has is reshuffling the apple cart. And that's new information for people to take in when they're looking at very high numbers in the December 1st letter, which yes. is stressful as well. Yeah. And, you know, there were some mechanisms that we built into that bill. So when we were talking about how to implement something is often the hardest part of it, right? Like the actual transition itself. And so one version of the transition we talked about was basically we would do like a fifth of the transition every year for five years. Mm -hmm. And everyone felt like that would be unbelievably confusing. And so we decided to do the whole transition all at once. Oh, okay. But we would sort of protect the districts that might see a really intense consequence of that. Mm -hmm. And so we built in this buffer. Okay. That a district is held harmless from having their tax rate go up by more than 5%. That's right. right. And that sort of buffer to keep districts from having their tax rate go up more than 5% is to sort of acknowledge that a district could keep it spending exactly the same and see a skyrocketing tax rate and might need a few years to adjust to that. And so this sort of gives the few years to adjust to that. What it means is that then that sort of spending that that district is doing then gets spread more across the other districts. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how the Joint Fiscal Office and Legislature often talks about sort of a balloon. So if you're pushing down the peak of the balloon, it just sort of gets spread to the other spots in the balloon. Gotcha. I know balloons don't have peaks. The hump, if you're pushing down a hump on a balloon, it gets sort of spread to other folks. And so what we're seeing is that because of that sort of peak and spreading, a lot of districts are going to be right around that 5% increase. Mm, Okay. Interesting. And then we put property values on top of it that are rising really fast and we get a little bit of a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Has your committee and or the joint fiscal office had a chance to piece out 
how the the COVID housing market might be impacting all this as well. And I, I asked that because we saw house properties, sorry, values just jump during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they haven't quite leveled out yet. I think they're still a little bit in flux. And so, you know, one of the questions with something that, that does that, does that huge jump mm-hmm. in, in response to, to an event, will it stay up there? Mm-hmm. Or will things crash, not things aren't going to crash, but, you know, mm-hmm. level down, level up, level where they are. <sighs> Have you had a chance to look at how yeah. craziness <laughs> So my committee hasn't done anything since May because we don't meet during the off session. That's right. Sorry. It's okay. No, I just just sort of reminding the listening public about that. And we get an annual report, which sort of sets the common level of appraisal and talks about sort of property values. And that's coming out any day now, probably by the 15th of December. And yes, sort of the market has come somewhat because of an interest rates being so high. But I think part of the spike, and I don't just think this like out of my imagination, I think this after some pretty careful conversations with folks over the last few years about this, we don't do full reappraisals of our grand lists very regularly here in Vermont. Mm -hmm. So other states, most other states reappraise all properties every three years, every five years. Some of our towns go like 30 years. Oh, wow. And so what that means is that when we see this sort of like spike, in some ways that's not, um, it's a spike because there's been a trough that wasn't acknowledged. Mm. So yes, like things grew really fast, but a lot of that is actually it's like sort of normal growth that we weren't paying attention to mm-hmm. over many years mm-hmm. um, because there weren't enough sales for folks to notice. Gotcha. Um, but property values had been going up a lot. And so we use this mechanism in Vermont because we have this very, very slow reappraisal system called the common level of appraisal. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's, you could think of it as sort of like a statistical reappraisal. And it says like, your town hasn't reappraised for a bajillion years. And so we don't trust that your property values are appraised at anything close to what they actually should be. Mm -hmm. And so we're slapping this adjuster on it. And that sort of accounts for the differences from town to town in their ability and willingness to reappraise and in some sort of different property values from town to town. And so that's called the common level of appraisal. And that sort of is like an extra level sometimes of sticker shock on top of existing tax rates. Mm-hmm. Oh, fun. Yeah. So we have just just a little under 10 minutes before the end yeah. of the show. I, I have a question about Doug Hoffer's newsletter, but before I do that, I want to make sure that we leave listeners with, we don't just leave them in the shock. We Mm -hmm. leave them with at least some little light at the end of the tunnel. Even if that light might be an oncoming train, it's still there. Oh, no, it's not an oncoming train. (laughs) What's the next step? Where do we go from here? 
I think we all need to pay attention to pay attention to what we want our schools to do and what we want our communities to do. I think we need to pay attention to where our taxes come from. You know, an easy way to lower property taxes might be to raise the sales tax. Are people going to be better off as a result of that? My guess is no. Mm -hmm. So that's just sort of an example. And participating makes a difference in all directions. And don't just read a headline. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of resources to understand this better. It's it's a complicated system because it's designed for equity. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. But you still need to, you know, we all need to read past the headlines sometimes. Mm -hmm. yes. What do you think, Olga? Well, I go back to what I said earlier in the show about getting involved now rather than waiting mm -hmm. until town meeting. Yeah, because now is when not only do school boards, since we're talking mm -hmm. about school budgets, have the most bandwidth mm -hmm. to talk to you and try to walk you through what yes. they're working with. Mm -hmm. This is also when the budget is being built. Yeah, if you have time to like zoom into your local school board if they mm -hmm. if they're on Zoom or attend a meeting if you can, this is where you can actually hear the principal say. We lost this many teachers. We need to build back this many teachers. Our, you know, our mm -hmm. people size did this. This is where you can actually get the nitty gritty and probably have a better understanding of what your school district is dealing with. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that can not only inform your vote at come town meeting, but this is when you can ask questions. And this is when mm -hmm. you can push back if you want to push back. And yeah. it's when everything's still in flux and you can actually have an impact. So that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. And understand, I, I had such a chuckle. Emily sent me two op-eds, both from, I think, the St. Albans Messenger. Mm -hmm. And you sent me that screenshot, which I liked. There was one on top, one on the bottom. And the one that was a little more thought, mm, I don't want to say thoughtful. I'm trying to stay away from charged language but delved into the issue and tried to understand the letter and break it down and, and talk about kind of the big picture around education spending was mm -hmm. a longer op-ed because there was more to explain. And then at the bottom, there was this other op-ed was that was basically, we can't spend money, mm -hmm. no new taxes. And it mm -hmm. was shorter because basically all they were saying is, ah, and just mm -hmm. remember folks that it is much easier to just go, ah, <laughs> than it is to dig into something. So you may need to take a little more time mm -hmm. with some of these issues. Yeah. And one piece of the little more time is all of the conversations we've had here included is about what the average tax rate change would be. And not as like, there's never an average person in any system, but like in this system, it's particularly true. There's not an average school district. Each school district is going to have an each different tax rate. Every single person within that school district is going to have a different tax rate from each other based on a wide variety of factors. And so even if everything comes to pass as described in the December 1st letter, which is likely impossible, everyone's experience of that is going to be totally nuanced and different from each other. Yes. Thank you, Emily. I'm not sure we really actually have time to talk about Doug Hoffer's newsletter, but I'll just quickly summarize it here. He was looking specifically at the increase in healthcare costs for teachers in this December 1st letter. And he put out a few suggestions for uh, solutions mm -hmm. about how to maybe bring some of those costs down. And it's probably worth having him 
on a show, Emily, because I think this is something what he was talking about doesn't pertain just to teachers' healthcare. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that probably impacts a lot of people and could be worth exploring. Yeah, I actually don't know anything about it. I know that it seems to be working in other states and I know that it would work it like would specifically be for sort of like publicly negotiated health insurance. So that would be teachers and state employees, which is a huge portion of Vermonters. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would be fun to dive, dive into in another show. Okay. We'll make a note of that. We could, you know, do all kinds of like various proposals on healthcare cost reform. That might be a fun that would be fun show. <laughs> that would be a popular one. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Especially around the insurance companies. Emily, thank you for diving into education funding. As always, like I said earlier in the show, feel free to drop us a line at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com if you have any thoughts or preferences or anything. We're always open to <laughs> people. <laughs> uh, Emily, if people want to find out more about you or connect with you, what can they do? Folks can go to, um, what's my website? emilykornheiser.org and find links to all the ways to be in touch. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station every Friday at 2 and is rebroadcast every Wednesday morning, 8 or 8.30. Not a clue. Remember. But you can catch us there. And you can always find us wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. So take care, everyone. Have a good day.